Welcome to another episode of 32 Questions, a United Ireland podcast companion series where we ask one politician 32 questions. On this episode, we're talking to the recent recipient of our best OGTD award from our 2020 awards episode, Richard Boyd Barrett. Richard is a TD for the Dunleary constituency in Dublin. He was first elected to the Dáil in 2011, following really quite a remarkable trajectory when you think about it. In the 2004 local elections, he received 7.4% of the votes cast. Yet in 2009, that had jumped to 22.8% and him topping the poll. In 2011, he was elected to the Dáil on the 10th count, taking the fourth seat. And in the 2020 election, he topped the poll. Throughout his decade in the Dáil, he's emerged as something of the socialist conscience of Parliament and has been heavily involved in grassroots campaigning and protest for years, from everything uh, like the, the protests against illegal Iraq war tw- 2003 to anti-austerity protests during the Great Recession to the water charges protest movement to more recently advocating, along with other left-wing politicians, for striking debitum workers. Throughout this period, socialist politics and politicians have moved from the fringes of Irish electoral politics and voter behaviour as well to a much more dominant position as displayed during the 2020 vote left, transfer left voter movement and the discourse surrounding the potential of a left wing government. As younger generations increasingly gravitate towards socialist and left wing politics, Boyd Barrett is there, a core figure of the Solidarity People Before Profit Alliance. So let's get going with 32 questions for Richard Boyd Barrett. Richard, what politician first inspired you? Um, it wasn't. It was, really wasn't a politician, to be honest. Uh, it was more an event that inspired me. Uh, I, I went with friends traveling after uh, working in London for a while on building sites. And then I, I, we, went, we decided to go somewhere exotic and we ended up in Palestine in 1987. Uh, purely for, you know, to try and find work and go somewhere sunny. And we literally stumbled into the first Palestinian Intifada, and I, I became friends with some guys who were who were from Al Fawar refugee camp near Hebron. And the about two weeks after we arrived, the first Palestinian Intifada started, and we were you know first hand witnesses to it. So that was really the thing that kind of propelled me towards politics. I hadn't a huge interest in it before that. What do you like to do in your spare time? Uh, well, lately, uh, I've been playing chess, <laughs> inspired by Queen's Gambit, uh, <laughs> which is a brilliant TV series for those who haven't seen it. Uh, so I'm really now, obviously, I play with my son because, you know, social contacts are limited. Uh, but I've also, I have to confess, uh, been playing online chess and it's, uh, it's quite fun. But apart from that... Uh, I listen to music a lot and uh, watch, you know, films and stuff like that. And I quite like cooking. And I have to confess, I have a bottle of beer or a glass of wine while I'm cooking. Confess. What, <laughs> what do you consider to be your greatest achievement? Oh, God. You know, the, the thing I'm really proudest of, the campaign I'm really proudest of, 
uh, is the campaign we ran to stop the sell-off of the public forest estate. I mean, I've been involved in lots of things, you know, the water charges and repeal, but I really feel proud about the, the forest campaign because it was, it was not on anybody else's radar. Uh, uh, and it was brought to my attention uh, by uh, a guy called Andrew St. Ledger from the Woodland League. Um, and, uh, you know, I just thought, oh, my God, this is horrendous that they might sell the entire harvesting rights for the Irish public forest estate, about 7% of the land mass of the country, to be sold to uh, investors and banks. Uh, I just thought it was shocking. And so we organized this really amazing protest in Avondale Woods, which is a beautiful place, uh, Parnell's original home and residence, uh, beautiful forest estate. Uh, and we had uh, Christy Moore performing and Paddy Casey and loads of bands. Uh, my mum, Sinead Cusack, performed Shakespeare. It was amazing. And thousands of people, we didn't know if anybody would turn up. But thousands of people turned up and literally within two weeks of that, the government reversed their decision. Uh, so it was, uh, I was really very proud of that because it's just such a shocking thing that the, um, they would sell off all the forests for money. Uh, so that I kind of think is probably the one I'm most proud of. What's your biggest pet peeve? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> pet peeve. I, 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 I I honestly don't know. Um, you tend not to get annoyed by things, Richard, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, from a political point of view, I, I do hate sort of dishonesty. Uh, that You know, when you get dishonest answers, when you know they're playing games with you in the door uh, and not really answering questions, not really saying what they think, I, uh, that does frustrate me. Um, so that that's a peeve. That's a kind of political peeve. I don't know on a personal level what uh, what peeves me, but uh, yeah, I, I think people not playing a straight bat, you know, just being straight up and honest uh, about what they think, even if they disagree with you, just being honest. Who are you most inspired by? God, these are seriously difficult questions. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, oh, there's so, there, I mean, there really is so many. Um, I was very inspired by the Debenhams workers recently. I mean, they were just amazing. Uh, you know, when that campaign started, uh, these mostly women workers were, um, you know, they, w they really hadn't talked much about politics, but they just were done a terrible injustice. Uh, and they were so determined to kind of, you know, do something about that injustice and for them to stick it out for a year, basically in terrible weather conditions and the height of the pandemic fighting for justice. They really, and they just grew as people as well. It's, it's an amazing thing on a, on a picket line and a campaign, just watching people grow as human beings uh, and some amazing, wonderful characters kind of emerged out of all that. So that, like in recent times, that was a particularly inspiring group of people. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, God, it's hard to pick an individual figure. Uh, sorry if that's not a great answer, but uh, there's many. <laughs> what, what is your most annoying habit? My most annoying habit? Uh, probably smoking. 
<laughs> I would say it's certainly my worst habit. Uh, it, it's a terrible and inexcusable habit, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's not good at any level, but uh, it's, a, it's nonetheless a habit I have. Um, I would say maybe some of my colleagues uh, would say that my habit is uh, my bad habit is to be what's the word you know um, a bit uh, excessively forceful sometimes on things <laughs> Um yeah, I think may- maybe that might annoy some of my colleagues sometimes. Um, I don't mean to be, you know. Uh, but sometimes when 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 you feel when you feel very passionately about something, you kind of sometimes maybe don't listen as much as you should. <laughs> uh, what do you think about so many Green Party elected reps bailing on the party? I think it was kind of inevitable when they went in uh, with Fine Gael and Fine Fall. I. I, you know, I just don't know what they were thinking of, particularly after the last uh, occasion where they went in with Fianna Fáil. It was a disaster for them. I, I don't know what they thought was going to be different this time round. Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all. And I think, you know, when you look at CETA, which has really caused a big problem for them, you know, that's really kind of gets to the the core of what green politics surely should be about or anybody who's concerned about the environment is opposing the a, a terrible trade deal like that or what are they going to do on Mercosur? You know, a shocking deal from the point of view of the environment, the rainforests, and even from the point of view of the small farmer in this country and, you know, signs on us, they're going to they're gonna go along with this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it's not surprising and I just think it speaks to a problem within green politics is you, you can pretend that you can overcome a left-right divide, but in truth, the left-right divide always asserts itself in real policy. Uh, you know, and if you, try and if you try and manage the market, it just doesn't work. You know, the profit motive asserts itself in capitalism. And unless you decidedly say, well, actually the environment and people and society are more important than profit, I think you're going to come a, a cropper if you try and gloss over that, what I would see as a quite a fundamental fact of the system we live under. What was going through your mind um, as Taoiseach Michal Martin said the banks weren't bailed out? I was just gobsmacked. I really was. Uh, my jaw dropped. I knew immediately this is... <laughs> what it's you know from his point of view even what a crazy thing to say um so that yeah that was my that was my immediate uh thought this is just incredible but you know and then as i reflected on it, i saw well of course that's what they would say they don't really want to admit uh their you know their culpability for what happened in 2008 um and i mean that's one thing actually talking about habits that peeve you you know, not being able to put up your hands and say you were wrong. It's a terrible trait uh, that is sadly quite pervasive in politics. An unwillingness to just acknowledge we got something wrong. Um, and uh, it, it, I think it really drives people crazy. Pe- pe- people can live with people making mistakes if they can honestly acknowledge them and say, yeah, we got that wrong and we're going to try and 
rectify it and do things differently. But they, it was a, just a, it was an incredible refusal to admit what a disaster 2008 was and how the decisions they made to, to favour banks over people, the consequences of all of that. Do you think he b- b- really believes that? That's a very good question. I don't know. I, I wouldn't... Uh, I, I wouldn't dare to kind of, uh, you know, speculate about the inner workings of Neil Martin's mind or the government. I, I don't know. Maybe they really honestly believe that you just have to accept the existing system. And that the logic of the existing system is you've got to prop up the banks. They're too big to fail. And uh, if you don't do that, everything is going to fall apart. Maybe they actually believe that. Um, but I don't know. But, uh, but obviously, I fundamentally disagree, and I think we paid a terrible price. Uh, um, but yeah, I suppose that is that is the left-right divide, isn't it? The, the sort of belief that you've got to you've got to work within the parameters of the market and the capitalist system, and you know the profit dynamic. Uh, that, that is the fundamental trait of of uh, establishment politics. You know, the, the political consensus. Um, and that's obviously something I fundamentally disagree with and people on the left, I think, uh, should fundamentally disagree with. What's your current state of mind? Oh, <laughs> manic, <laughs> manic. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's grim, isn't it? I mean, it, it, you obviously do your best and I'm lucky, you know. Uh, I think anybody who's still going out to work in some shape or form, uh, it, it keeps you sane. Um, uh, but even for those that are, it's grim. The whole thing is is, is really grim. And you just wonder, are, are we ever going to get out of this? I mean, I do believe there's a way out of it, but you know, nothing's certain in the current climate, is it? Is it, is it? And, uh, but for, you know, I really feel for people who are just uh, imprisoned in their houses and don't get the opportunity to get out and work sometimes. Uh, it's just absolutely dreadful, the whole situation and, you know, just the macabre phenomena of uh, fatality figures and people being sick, being read out night after night. It's really pretty awful stuff. Uh, so I do my best to keep cheery and uh, optimistic, uh, but it's a hard time. What is one thing you can't live without? Ooh. That is so tough. Um, I, well, I, you know, company. <laughs> company, I think. Uh, human beings to talk to. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's the thing that gets you through, isn't it? Uh, you know, your family, your friends, uh, your colleagues, uh, just having people to talk to. I mean if you were totally isolated as some people are, that is, that's a hard station. And I mean, I think we've all had a taste of some of that isolation over the last while and it can be pretty tough. Uh, but at least, you know, if you, if you've got friends uh, and people you can talk to and unload your burdens on uh, a bit and share the burden with, uh, that's, that helps you get through things. We're, we're fundamentally social creatures, I think. Speaking of people to talk to, what's the best advice you've ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given. 
Well, one person who gives me advice sometimes uh, is Christy Moore, who, by the way, if we're talking about people who, you know, I really look up to and a legend and uh, all that, but just on a personal level, who inspires me, Christy Moore is an amazing uh, person. But, you know, he'd always say, Richard, just look after yourself a bit, you know? I know you've got to do what you got to do and you're out there fighting the battles, but just look after yourself a bit because you'll be no good if you're, bur- if you're totally burnt out. Um, and I think that is good advice for anybody, you know? Uh, I mean, it's a good thing, I suppose, for people to be passionate about the things they're doing and to work hard and, you know, but the, the stress of all of that can take its toll on you and indeed on your relationships and the people around you. So you've got to just be a little bit careful on that, on that side. So... Christy's a wise man. When and where were you happiest? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, they, these are such difficult questions. Um, when and why was I, was I happiest? Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, the birth of my son and uh, seeing him you know, grow up and thrive and just being in his company. I, I love that. Uh, particularly because this is a slightly, you know, sad point, but uh, myself and my ex-partner and the mother of my son uh, had had a baby who died very young. Um, so that was very tough on both of us. Uh, she was born and only lasted a few days because of uh, fetal, fatal abnormalities. Uh, and uh, that was that was pretty rough. Uh, so to have our son after that was, you know, a great joy basically to, you know, deal with the you know the pain really of that. Um, so yeah, my what's son your, is a big joy. What's your greatest regret? Uh, getting involved in politics. <laughs> 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 Fair. Uh, no, I mean I'm joking. I'm joking. But uh, w- before I got involved in politics, I was studying English literature in UCD, and uh, you know I, I'm still very passionate about literature and the arts and all of that. And I, I think if I hadn't got involved in politics, I don't know what I would have done in that area. But it definitely that's the kind of direction I was heading of of, of literature and the arts, and I still kind of. You know, I'd love to write a novel or something. I don't know if I'd write a very good novel. Uh, but you don't really have time for that when you're uh, when you're so tied up with campaigns uh, and stuff. So, yeah, in a parallel existence, I wouldn't have minded kind of trying out being a poet or a writer. What is your greatest extravagance? Greatest extravagance? Well, these days, uh, cooking, you know, I, I'm kind of really getting into cooking. I love experimenting with stuff. I don't know if you'd describe that as an extravagance, an in, <clears throat> excuse me, an indulgence maybe. Uh, uh, but I do kind of love trying different spices and trying different ingredients and doing things I've never done before uh, with cooking. So that's definitely an extravagance. Um and, uh, well, something that I think I certainly miss, probably a lot of people miss at the moment, is being able to just travel to other places. Um, 
And uh, I'm just dreaming of, I don't know, being on a Greek island with little whitewashed houses behind me and just with my <laughs> toes in the warm Mediterranean water. Uh, yeah, I could do with a bit of that. So I really hope we get past the pandemic so we can all do that again. Dream. Uh, <laughs> how, how do you feel about your detractors using your private schooling as a point scoring opportunity against your politics? Uh, I mean, it really is water off a duck's back to me. I just think it's kind of silly. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't see the point of it. I didn't have any, <clears throat> excuse me, great choice about what school I went to at the age of 12. Uh, I mean, in fact, I went to a public school, a national school, uh, you know, in, in primary school and then went to a private school selected by my parents. But, uh, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, you, you, you know, there's people who are doing, who are very much part of the establishment and some of them very wealthy people now who are very much defenders of, I think, a system that's unjust and unequal who went to public school or, you know, went to non-fee paying schools. So I don't, I don't think it's a defining thing. I do accept that, well, not accept is right. I mean, I, I, I'm against two-tier education. And uh, I think they maybe would have a much stronger case if I was sending my kids, my own kids to private school, which I absolutely would not do uh, as a matter of principle. Um, in fact, I don't even take out private health insurance as a matter of principle because I just don't believe in a two-tier health or education system. So they, I think that criticism would be more, you know, if you were guilty of something like that, that would be hypocrisy. Uh, but the school my parents sent to me is hardly, is hardly a base for criticizing my politics, I don't think. A lot of your politics is about mobilizing people to affect change. Um, yet one of the criticisms constantly thrown at the likes of PBB is that um, socialist parties or, or left-wing parties don't want to go in government or be in government. Um, do you want to see PBB in government to affect change through um, policy and legislation? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see a socialist government. Um, but, you know, there's a fundamental difference between what a socialist government is and what a conventional government is, in that it is genuinely a government of the people. Uh, so it's not limited, the very limited form of democracy we're talking about now, which is an election every five years. Uh, and the, pe the people uh, really have no say, it would, except those few minutes when they go into a ballot box every five years. So I'm not interested, and socialists, I think genuine socialists are not interested in government for its own sake. Uh, they're interested in creating a government that is genuinely responsive to the popular will and aspirations and needs uh, of people. So that's what I'm interested in. Um, whereas I do think conventional politics, the logic of it, I mean, I can't speak for every individual in it, but the logic which I see operating in the doll all the time is, the, is a, a, about it being a career and going up the ladder. So the aspiration is not so much, I want to achieve this, I want to achieve a national health service, or I want to achieve, you know, women's liberation or whatever. It's about, I want to be minister, maybe Taoiseach, or, you know, that's, that's the kind of wrong logic, uh, I think, of the existing political system. And it's kind of structurally inbuilt in it. Um, and I absolutely make no apologies, and I think people for profit make no apologies for trying to resist that logic and saying, 
It's not about whether Richard Boyd Barrett is in government. It's whether the government is going to deliver on the policies that will actually deliver real change and transformation for people who suffer inequality and uh, discrimination and injustice. What do you see as the future for people before profit? Um, well, I mean, we want to make the argument a left government is possible. Uh, I think for, that's quite an important, uh, would be quite an important historical milestone for this country because every single government since the foundation of the state has been dominated by two political parties who are very conservative. Uh, so it would be, I think, a, a seismic shift in the political landscape to just realign Irish politics along a left-right uh, kind of um, lines. So that's that's certainly a thing I think we have played a role in kind of putting that, that up uh, centre stage, particularly in the last election, because if you remember before the last election, in the in the couple of months running into the debate, it was all about who was going to go into coalition with either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. That was the debate. And, I, I, you know, without blowing our trumpet too much, we were the first people who said and run into that election, actually, we should seriously think this could be the election where a left-wing government it becomes possible. And that became a very, very popular idea in the election. Now, in terms of the parliamentary numbers, we didn't quite achieve it, although we still, still thought a left-minority government was a possibility. Um, but the, what was very interesting was the brilliant response huge numbers of people gave to that idea of break the cycle of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, a left government is possible. And I thought that really fitted with the, the huge shift in the Irish political landscape that we'd seen around repeal, about marriage equality, around water charges, the movements against austerity, all of that. You know, there was a subterranean kind of, you know, movement happening in Irish society. And I think that notion that we could really shift things in a in new and progressive direction. Uh, so I think that's one of our big objectives. Um, but also, you know, there's specific policy issues, obviously. Like, I mean, housing just drives me demented. The housing crisis drives me absolutely demented. It just breaks my heart that at the most elementary level, the system is failing people, that it can't put an affordable roof over the heads of now. If you look at that survey yesterday about house apartment prices, the vast, vast majority of people, even who are working, cannot get an affordable roof over their head. Doesn't that say something about a system? So to me, solving the housing crisis would solve a lot of other problems as well. It would improve society's mental health. It would put women in a better position. It would put children in a better position. It would, you know, it would just have so many knock-on effects. Um, so that would be a big, big priority for me. What is your motto? Uh, my motto is, uh, I am no better than anybody else. Uh, but nobody else is any better than me. <laughs> um, or something like that. Do you know? I, I think and it's not just a motto for me, but I think that's a, 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 a thought that everybody needs to have. Um, because I think the, the hierarchies are really, you know, corrosive. Um, and often <clears throat> this notion that I'm not good enough is kind of, uh, it's inculcated in people's heads, you know? And uh, I think it's very corrosive in our society. So I, 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 yeah, that would be kind of my idea is that people have to have confidence in themselves. They shouldn't be arrogant. They shouldn't think they're any better than anybody else. 
but neither should they think that they're somehow lesser than anybody else. And I, I, I think that's a kind of good way to look at the world. So, it, you know, you respect everybody as an equal, but, it, but you don't ever kind of look down on yourself. What's your greatest fear? Ooh. Um, personally or politically? <clears throat> Both. Sure, go on. Um, well, politically, my biggest fear would be the, uh, a serious growth of the far right. Uh, that would really worry me. And, uh, you know, I think people sometimes think that the horrors that we saw in the 30s and 40s with the Nazis and the fascists, that could never happen again. Um, and I think people forget that the Nazis grew in one of the most culturally developed, economically developed and sophisticated societies in the world at the time. And I think so, there's some notion that maybe that kind of thing only happens in backward, underdeveloped kind of societies. Germany was the most, or one of the most culturally and economically advanced countries in the world. And yet this absolutely horrendous political movement emerged, which committed the greatest crimes in human history. So that's, that, that should be, a, you know, never again has to, be, uh, has to be a thought for anybody who wants a decent world to live in. And when you look at the way Trump and the far right have, you know, sort of stirred up forces, dangerous political forces around the world. Now, I don't want to be doomsday about it because I still think the vast majority of people want nothing to do with that kind of politics. <clears throat> but it happened in Germany. And if you're complacent, if you don't offer alternatives to people when the world is, is not working for them, the system is not working for them, then that kind of horrendous politics uh, can grow. And in a way that links into the personal thing. I mean, I just want, I want life to be decent for my, you know, for my son, for if I ever have grandchildren uh, and for everybody else's sons and daughters and grandchildren. I just, you know, you worry, you worry for the future generations with some of the things that are happening in the world. Um, on a, even on a personal level, you know, you think when I'm gone, I just hope, I hope uh, the younger generation now aren't left with a, you know, a dire situation to deal with. Would you like to go into government with Sinn Féin? It's not about liking or... <laughs> <laughs> it's not about liking going into government, really. Uh, I, I think it's more... Yes, I mean, we, we, we were straight up and honest. We, we supported Mary Lou McDonald's nomination for Taoiseach. I can't remember who else did. I think we may have been the only ones who did. Uh, and that's not because we agree with all of their politics. In fact, we quite strongly disagree with some of the stuff they're doing in the North. Um, and we're not nationalists, we're socialists. So we have, a, we have a different view. But we do think that the people who voted for us and the people who voted for them had similar aspirations for the sort of change they wanted on housing, on health, on women's rights, on climate action, on, you know, all the, the what I consider to be the left kind of priorities and projects for a different type of society. And therefore, I think we are duty bound to be willing to cooperate with Sinn Féin, but not just with Sinn Féin, with the uh, Social Democrats, with independent left-wingers. And, you know, being honest, the Labour Party was a thorny issue in all of that because Labour had left such a bitter uh, taste in people's mouths after going in with Fine Gael and presiding over austerity and all of that. 
but even that, I think you, you, you sort of have to consider. But really the key issue is what is going to, what are the policy priorities and platform of such a government going to be? Uh, and if that involves Sinn Féin and other left parties, absolutely we have a responsibility uh, to join a government if, if it is going to really make the change. What we're not going to do is just join a, an assemblage that can just about make up a majority, but that isn't actually going to f- stick to its principles and uh, policies. You have this amazing ability to speak off the cuff um, and off script while still forming very clear speeches. How and where do you write? I don't write. I don't write. Do you mean for, for speeches? Speeches or do, how do you form these like amazing speeches? Um, mostly I just try and think about the issue beforehand and try and really understand it. Um, if I don't understand an issue, I make a mess of the speech. Do you know, if you're spoofing. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to spoof. I kind of don't see the point in that. And I don't see the point of people just getting up and reading scripts if they don't really have a feel for the issue or, you know, don't even believe what's on the script. I just see that as pointless. Like, I, I, I think you, you've got to really think, yes, I understand this issue. I, un, you know, I understand the facts around it and I have a very definite view of, you know, what I think on this issue. Uh, and I think once you have that, then it flows. You know, in my experience, it flows. Now, that's not to say I never write down a few notes. There may be certain, like, empirical facts or statistics that you just can't memorize, and I might write them down if I need to refer to some particular fact or technical issue. I might write a few notes about those things. But in terms of, like, formulating the, uh, the argument, I don't... I just think about it in advance and I then kind of let it flow. Um, you know, I mean, that's something through experience as well. Cause you know, one of the things about speaking, I think is it's a huge amount about lack of confidence uh, or confidence, having confidence or not having confidence. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I remember the first time I ever spoke at a meeting, I kind of stopped and became self-conscious and sort of gagged. I was speaking at a meeting in Bray in 1990 or something. And uh, I just couldn't do it. You know, I became self-conscious. Uh, and I think a lot of people have a terrible fear of public speaking because it's kind of, you know, it's a lack of confidence people have in their own ability to articulate things. Um, and that's very debilitating for huge numbers of people. And I think, you know, whereas there's this, a cohort of people who are trained, sometimes in private schools, it has to be said, uh, who are kind of have this self-confidence that they can just speak and what they say is important. So I think a, a big thing is to kind of instill in people, young people in particular, um, the, the confidence to speak up and that their ideas are important and valuable. I don't know if that's a slightly rambling answer, but that's, <laughs> that's my answer. What's the best <clears throat> book you've read recently? Oh, wow. Uh, politically or kind of fiction-wise or anything? Anything. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I read so many books, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, at the moment I'm reading Mick Heron, who's a sort of, uh, he's a modern-day John le Carrie, but a little bit more um, comedic you know it's about this crowd of misfits in mi5 or mi6 in uh, who they're the kind of rejects of british intelligence services so it's kind of funny but it 
they actually deal with really kind of topical issues, political and social uh, issues in the kind of the capers they get involved in. So that's quite interesting. A um, little bit uh, back, uh, I read a fantastic book by a Cuban writer called Leonardo Padura uh, called uh, The Man Who Loved Dogs which was an amazing book, which is based on uh, the story of the guy who killed Trotsky, uh, Ramon Mercator, who'd started his political activity during the Spanish Civil War and then was trained up by the GPU, the Stalinists, to kill Trotsky. And then it also tells the story of Trotsky as he heads towards the killing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and it's a fascinating book. But what's really fascinating as well is Padura is also very much has an eye to Cuba, uh, where he's clearly a critic of um, of the Castro regime. And if like it, it's failure to fully deliver on the socialist aspirations that maybe the, you know, the, the originators of, of socialist politics uh, might, might have had for, for socialism. So it's a, it's a fascinating book, both about the political history of left-wing and socialist and far-left politics, but also about today. Uh, so he's a great writer. And he also, just to recommend him, he has a series of books which are now being dramatized on Netflix about a, uh, a detective in Havana called Conde. Uh, and he's written these uh, four books and it's a series, but the kind of, uh, you know, the subterranean side of Havana. Um, uh, but it's it's an interesting take, and you know, if you like your Raymond Chandler and your uh, Dashiell Hammett and those kind of uh, noir, whatever you call them, uh, type detective stuff, uh, you'd like you'd like Leonardo Padura. Uh, what meal have you cooked most during lockdown? Well, the thing I kind of cook really obsessively at the moment is uh, this thing called Doro Watt. Uh, which is, um, it's Ethiopian chicken stew. Uh, and I mean, the problem is, well, there's a place now in Finsborough that does Ethiopian food, but there's almost nowhere in in Ireland that does Ethiopian food. If you go to London, it's a big treat because there's quite a few places. And it's amazing food. Uh, so I am really got into it now. What I haven't mastered is they have this kind of sourdough uh uh, I wouldn't call it bread. It's like a pancake. They, they put all the different types of food on. I haven't mastered that yet because it takes like days to, to, to make, make the pancake, but it's amazing stuff. It's made from like this teff flour, it's called, uh, that grows in obviously Ethiopia and other places. And they grind it down and make a pancake out of it. So, uh, but anyway, I've been cooking this, the chicken stew bit of it and uh, it's very tasty. How do you look back on the water charges movement now? What impact do you think it had? I, I think it really was a, a game changer, to use a rather hack, hackneyed cliche, uh, but it, it activated huge numbers of working class people at a very kind of elemental level. So I think it was, it was tremendous. And just to see the mobilizations, I mean, I remember when we were organizing the initial meetings and we were having meetings just in, you know, little squares and, you know, in patches of grass in, in working class estates in Ballybrack and Sallynoggin and Monkstown Farm. Do you know what I mean? And people coming out of their houses, engaging in a political debate, which went way beyond just the immediacy of a water charge bill, but it was, it was about 
fairness in the context of austerity. It was about the protection of our natural resources. Uh, you know, it, it was really amazing. And it, it, it forced the governments to reverse, not just the water charges, but to abandon what I absolutely am, without shadow of a doubt, believe was the agenda and remains an agenda if they could get away with it, to privatise our water resources. And not just that. I mean, like the forests, there's an agenda in capitalism across the world to commodify natural resources um, because it's it's easy money, it's big money, and they know these resources are the key to our future. Uh, so I, I think it was, and, and it was kind of denigrated, you know, there was a certain commentariat who really denigrated the movement. So I remember, sorry to say this, Una, but in the Irish Times, somebody wrote a, an opinion piece uh, essentially suggesting that the water charges protesters were the barbarians at the door. And I really thought that was horrendous insult to the people because the people were very thought out uh, in what they were trying to achieve. And uh, I think they did, did us a favor in protecting our, our uh, most precious or one of our most precious natural resources. Mm. I wrote some pretty crap stuff about it as well, actually. <laughs> I was kind of gone thinking back on stuff that was kind of a bit detached. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's just a little admission. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Can you give us one word to describe each political party? Please. Oh, uh, <laughs> we'll start with Fine Gael. Fine Gael. Um, uh, defenders of... One word, Richard. Oh, one word. <laughs> one word. Oh, God. Um, one word. Uh, elitist. Finna uh, Conservative. <laughs> it's not very good words, by the way. You know, <laughs> I need I need more than one word to describe these. But then, go on. Sinn Fein. Uh, uh, this is so hard. Sinn Fein. Um. Uh, Radical-ish. <laughs> uh, Labour. Um, mm, uh, untrustworthy. <laughs> uh, sock dams. Better. <laughs> <laughs> the Greens. Uh, disappointing. <laughs> Ain't too. Awful. <laughs> PVP. Um, radical. <laughs> this is a fun game. I'm into this. <laughs> um, who would win in a fight, you or Paul Murphy? In a physical fight. In a physical fight. I don't know. Um, not sure. I, I'm not going to try it out, though. Uh, <laughs> she's a bit younger than me, you know. Uh, when I was younger, I'd say I would have won. <laughs> What's one policy issue that you think could be progressed, yet is something that gets no attention? An issue that gets no attention. 
Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of issues that I think are breast that do get attention. The forestry thing, I have a kind of developed a passion for, and I think it's not discussed. I mean, I, I actually got up and spoke loads of times about it, but I never get any coverage. Nobody's interested in the forests. Uh, but I, I think even when you think about, uh, I mean, insofar as I understand the science, that, that they are saying that even the proliferation of pandemics is linked to, to, some, to some degree to the destruction of biodiversity and uh, pristine ancient forest and all that. And, uh, you know, the destruction of the forest in this country is, is, a, is kind of... Irish historic, cultural and historical tragedy, um, which we should do something to remedy. So I do, I do think forestry needs to, uh, and it's kind of linked to that biodiversity thing needs to probably be talked about a bit more. And it can, it, it, it's not just an environmental thing. Actually, I think it would have huge, huge social and economic uh, benefits to people and mental health benefits. Do you have any pets and what are their names? No. Uh, I don't. I, I had dogs uh, when we were younger, always in the house, but I just wouldn't have time to look after them. And I just, I, I'd hate to think of neglecting, neglecting a dog. Uh, when I retire, <laughs> I might get a dog. I had a, cat. I had a cat at one stage. What was the cat's uh, name? Smokey Joe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where have you been walking or exercising most during lockdown? Um, the Ivy Gardens, the Ivy Gardens. Um, yeah, cause, uh, I've been staying in the Liberties actually during the lockdown, uh, in my mum's house, uh, just cause well, I won't go into the complications of <laughs> family stuff, but uh, that's where I've been staying. So the nearest within my 2K or 5K has been the Ivy Gardens and, uh, the, <clears throat> the Ivy Gardens is amazing. Uh, amazing place great place for gigs as well yeah so I mean Dempsey there a couple of years ago it was just mind-blowing <clears throat> but yeah it's a nice nice place to walk what do you think about the growth in socialism or socialist leaning thinking and discourse amongst young people globally yeah it's very exciting I mean god you know if you had to mention the word socialism in America when I started political activism as well it's just you just wouldn't have you know, or is barely mentioned. So it's not in mainstream discussions about American politics. Now, you know, Trump spent his entire election campaign attacking the radical socialists, which is an amazing thing. And, and it is gaining ground among young people. So, yeah, I think that's quite, uh, it's quite exciting. Um, and uh, certainly even in, I mean, in our own modest way in people for profit, we're getting a lot of young people joining uh, and, Engaging, it's been very exciting. Engaging with you know the student nurses and midwives, uh, other student groups, uh, young workers in various areas. So uh, kind of opening up to left wing politics. Um, so that that's yeah, I think that it's gaining ground. Um, I'd like to see it gain ground faster. Um, you know, because I do, I'm worried about as we said earlier on about the growth of the far right. I think there's really a race against time in a way to. Uh, to, to capture a growing disillusionment with the existing system at so many levels, whether it's housing, the environment, or just, you know, economic inequality and injustice, there's a race against time to capture that disillusionment and move it in a progressive direction and in a hopeful direction. I mean, I like to think socialism is the movement of hope, whereas fascism is the movement of despair. 
Uh, and uh, I think we need a politics of hope, but that will actually, you know, carry through those hopes into real meaningful political change. What would you like your legacy to be? I don't care about my legacy, to be honest. I, I really don't. I, I couldn't give a hoot about my legacy. <laughs> uh, if, uh, uh, in fact, you know, I'd be very happy to get out of politics and go back to writing poems or something uh, if I thought that the changes were happening. Um, so it really, I, you know, it's not about me, and nor should it be about individuals at all. I really kind of dislike that stuff, do you know? I mean, you have to put yourself out there politically. Uh, unfortunately, the way our system works, even, because it's about individuals being elected. Uh, so that kind of personal piece uh, is, really, it shouldn't be about that, do you know? So I just hope that myself and the people that I work with uh, and the many great people that I work with and campaign with can say we contributed towards pushing Irish society in a better direction and hopefully in really developing socialist politics as a serious viable project uh, in Ireland. That's, that's it really. And your 32nd question, if you had one day and night off from lockdown in a pandemic free world, what would you do? One night off. Yeah. You can't get very far no, in one night. Though, with no, con no, like the no consequences. So you wouldn't be being reckless. It's just like a little weird window, magic window that happens. And you don't have to build in getting back or anything. You can no. do anything. 24 hours of anything. What would you do? I think I'd be on that little Greek island, uh, you know, with my toes in the water and jumping in and out of a, a warm Mediterranean. And then, uh, you know, Having a having something nice to eat and a few drinks and a little whitewashed uh, whitewashed little cafe or restaurant on <laughs> on the waterside, um, yeah, I think that's that's what I'd be doing. Excellent, Richard Boyd Barr. Thank you for joining us for thirty two questions. Very intense. <laughs> <laughs>